Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for the show's theme music. They're online at respectsextet.com. They are celebrating their 10th anniversary this year, which is crazy. I can't believe they have been together that long, and uh, they've produced tons of great music in that time, and you'll find all of that at respectsextet.com. Also, they've got a 10th anniversary show coming up in October at Le Poisson Rouge in New York. If you'd like to go to that, and I trust me, you would, please go to respectsextet.com and find out the details on that. Thanks also to Dave Rabel, who designed the show's logo, low these many years ago, and has kept it looking good all these years. He is online at twitter.com slash Dave Vrabel, V-R-A-B-E-L. Thanks to All About Jazz for carrying the show on their website, allaboutjazz.com. They've also got a widget that you can put on your website. And if you do that, it'll just uh, reset every Monday and Thursday with the latest episode, which is pretty cool. And if you decide to put that widget on your website, please let me know because I'll mention you in my weekly newsletter, which goes out each Monday to many, many people and features news about what's coming up on the show and links to other jazz items. You can get that newsletter by becoming a member of the mailing list. Just go to thejazzsession.com and click on mailing list. You'll get one email a week, uh, no spam. I won't sell your address to anyone not least of which because I, I really don't know how to do that. But I wouldn't even if I did know how. So please go to thejazzsession.com and click on mailing list and join. And speaking of things to join, you can actually join the show. The show is free. You can get it whenever you want it for nothing. However, in order to make that a reality, I need people to agree to financially support it. If you'd like to be one of those people, you can do it very inexpensively or for tons of money, whichever you prefer, at thejazzsession.com slash join. At one point, I was, uh, before I, I ran from Facebook as if I were on fire, I was using it to put together uh, a meditation group that had no, no religious underpinnings at all, just a group of people who wanted to get together and kind of support each other's meditation practice. I tell you this, which I'm sure must seem odd with no context, but here's the context. I tell you this because at that time, one of the people who chimed in to give me some ideas about how maybe to do this was the pianist Carmen Stoff, who I, whom I had never met uh, and had heard some of her music online but really wasn't all that familiar with her as a player. And we chatted a few times, and then just last week I uh, went to see her at Issue Project Room with Kendall Eddy and Mann. I was so, so impressed. In fact, uh, I don't say, I don't think I said this to her in the interview or at any other time, but I can say I, it's been a while since I've been that impressed. Uh, I think just by like the sheer technique that she had. And I don't mean like the showy technique, but just the complete ease with which she was able to use the piano to make music. Uh, it really, I don't know. It was very beautiful. It really, uh, it really hit me very hard. And so I asked if she would come on the show, and then it just turned out that she's a fascinating person on many other levels. And uh, it, it was funny because I usually do these interviews, as you know, in the artist's home. And uh, in this case, it was kind of hilarious to like look around at all the books on the walls. It was basically like looking at my own book collection. And it's always nice when you have those little moments where you realize, oh, this is a person who has the same frame of reference I have, because I don't find all that many people with my frame of reference, which I think is probably good for them. Uh, in any case, Carmen's put out a couple records recently. The, uh, the most recent one is called Eye to Eye, uh, with her trio featuring Kendall Eddy on bass, with whom I saw her, and Austin McMahon on drums. That's kind of her working band, and it really sounds like it. As I mentioned, this record is called Eye to Eye, and we're going to hear uh, her composition, which leads it off called Prospect.
My guest is the composer and pianist Carmen Stoff. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for great being here. Great to be here. Thank you. So I saw you the other night uh, in a really gorgeous show at iBeam. And so I guess I start off asking you about duo playing. I saw you with the bassist Kendall Eddy. And maybe you can talk a little bit about duo playing and what challenges or joys it offers you. Yeah, well, that is one of my favorite settings to play in. Um, and as a pianist, I think it's kind of a fun challenge because, you know, we, we have such a range on the instrument of course that we can do and you know we've got we can play the bass notes in our left hand we can play melodies we can play chords you know it's really a complete instrument on its own so in a way kind of the fun thing about playing duo especially with a bass player is to uh, find different possibilities you know it's like Kendall is a bassist who's very versatile and he's very willing to you know go up if I'm going to go down and play bass lines on the piano or you know he'll accompany me or he'll play with a bow sometimes and we'll find different textures um, you know so it's kind of getting away sometimes from the more traditional roles that we might have um, sure. you know where which typically maybe he would play a, a walking bass line or something and then I might play chords and solo with my right hand or something like that but because we actually have so many possibilities available it's it's really fun and it can be very freeing to play duo yeah it seems like rhythmically speaking it could both apply pressure and allow for freedom yeah absolutely yeah it's it is really fun because when you have a drummer oftentimes if it's the tip the typical sort of piano trio you know piano bass and drums you um have this fantastic lineage that is behind you you know right. of that of that instrumentation with Nat King Cole, and then you have like, you know, Oscar Peterson, and you know, adding drums and Bill Evans, and all these people who have really defined what that piano trio has come to sound like. And of course, I listen to all those people coming up, and you know, Bud Powell, and all these types of players. And um, so there's that that you can draw on, and that's fantastic, and you know, it's a beautiful lineage. But at the same time, it can sometimes be a little bit difficult to get away from that when you have that instrumentation. Sure. Um, not that we don't also, of course, you know, with drums, but when there are no drums, it, it immediately opens things up and it's, you know, immediately you're at this point where you've got one less person, first of all. So, you know, one less person to sort of be on the same page with. Um, and also not having the drums you immediately, like you're saying, in the area of rhythm, there's much more flexibility. So, you know, if Kendall and I are really listening carefully to each other or, you know, looking at each other, or however it is that we're communicating musically, which hopefully is on many levels, um, we can go out of time, you know, we can speed up the time at some point, we can decide that we're suddenly going into rubato, you know, um, we can just not have any time at all, just be playing completely free in terms of the time. Um, so, yeah, I think it's one thing that that is also much more flexible when you don't have drums and that can be kind of fun. And also the piano itself is a percussion instrument and right. much of my favorite music on piano, you know, I'm a big fan of Cuban music and, you know, Latin American music and, and these styles where the piano is actually very percussive and we're kind of taking the reins as, you know, as pianists and saying like, here it is laying down the time. Sure. And so it's a lot of fun to get to do that, you know, even when there are no drums. Yeah. There.
Have you and Kendall played together a lot to kind of develop that rapport? Yeah, we've played together a ton, actually. He's probably one of the people I've played with the most okay. um, in my life, actually, which is really great. Uh, we met at New England Conservatory when we were studying there. He was doing his master's after doing a degree in classical bass, um, and I was getting my undergrad in jazz performance at New England Conservatory. And, um, and just, yeah, we just met, and we're playing in the big band together, and we started playing sessions, and then we, we started playing with the drummer Austin McMahon, who um, was the drummer we played with in the trio for a long time as well. And I guess it's been, you know, about eight years now that we've been playing together. So it's very, you know, we've, de we've definitely been able to develop a really good communication, and, you know, it's a lot of fun. It's very free sure. and comfortable in a way to play together. What do you think makes you two a good fit? Um, I think we're both willing to take risks, you know, and kind of enjoy the feeling of a little bit of, you know, being on a tightrope and kind of doing something and then just taking something, some kind of spontaneous chance and just seeing where it's going to go. Um, and I think, you know, once you've played with somebody for a long time, you can really trust the other person. And um, that's what's necessary, I think, for that kind of spontaneity. Sure. I'm going to try not to ask you to be my new best friend, but the very first person you mentioned when you were talking about the piano lineage was Nat Cole, who's like my, he's like the foundation of where I started listening to this kind of music. And this is now, this will be the 302nd or 3rd show when this airs next week, or as people listen to it now. I don't think anyone has ever mentioned his name in oh, all of those years. That's surprising. All of the piano players that <laughs> wow. I've been on, which strikes, yeah, which is surprising. Yeah. And maybe it, I guess it never really occurred to me until you did. And then I realized like, that has never, he has never come up in any oh, show wow. ever. Wow. He's a fantastic pianist. And I mean, talk about, you know, trio playing and like the small group, I guess maybe he's more known in, to the public at large as a vocalist, sure. but, but I mean, his chords on piano block chords, he plays this fantastic solo on, I think it's Body and Soul, where he has these amazing block chords in this famous recording and, and just so tasty, you could say, you know, so economical in the way he plays, but just creative and harmonically interesting, rhythmically. Yeah, I mean, I'm a great player. I think, uh, as far as I know, anyway, I think he was a big influence on Diana Krall in terms of, yeah, you know, absolutely. how one would make a really economical swinging statement sure. you know, as a as a trio player. Yeah, and definitely Oscar Peterson too. I mean, of was course, a person who yeah. listened to a lot of that. Of course. Um, and the thing about the uh, about Nat Cole's trio, uh, and I think we could relate this, um, I haven't seen you in a trio setting, but at least in the duo setting that I saw, I mean, his trio was like, they were, uh, people always say like, they play like one person. I mean, his trio really, it really was like one, you know, kind of multi-headed organism. I mean, the, the lines they execute together and the, it's not just the lines, it's the kind of the intentionality in the music. Like you can feel that everyone, everyone is proceeding kind of with the same will and spirit as they move through the music, which also really struck me about the, the kind of hookup between you and Kendall, even in tunes that like, cause I got there a little early and I saw you guys working out songs that you played five minutes later. And even so there was that feeling of real shared language and shared purpose that, you know, even if these weren't songs, you, some of them were songs you played a hundred times before, it didn't matter because you had that, like that same ground to kind of walk on. I don't know if that makes sense. But. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think, you know, in a way, it's kind of like when you have a conversation with somebody, the more sort of common background knowledge you have that you share with that person, the more things you can talk about comfortably. Sure. You know, you start getting into a subject that one of you doesn't really, you know sort of understand or have the information about it can get more difficult and it sort of feels like one person is kind of 
trying to pull the other one along or something like that. But when you have, you just sort of know, you know, you have these assumptions that you can just go on and say, okay, I trust that we can go here, we can go there. Um, I guess that's what being a good friend is really sure. in a way, you know, when you're friends with somebody, you just feel like you can be yourself, you can just do anything and it's going to be okay, you know, and that's, yeah. that's kind of the feeling I love. And of course, you can also have that feeling with total strangers in music as well. And that's an amazing, I mean, that's one of the most, the best feelings I think in music is when you meet a musician and you play for the first time and you just look at each other and go, wow, you know, how did we have that communication? Like yeah. we may not even speak the same language, you know, in verbally anyway. Um, and we might come from different parts of the world, but somehow we managed to have that kind of communication. So I think it's really special when you develop it over a long time with, you know, with another musician like I have with Kendall. And, and then also it's, it's thrilling when it happens just spontaneously too. Do you think that when it happens spontaneously with someone you never met, do you think that's because of a kind of shared uh, frame of reference that you would have with that musician in terms of your musical upbringings? Or? I think that's part of it. And part of it might be personality as well. Mm -hmm. You know, when you kind of, it's like you have the same sense of humor as somebody else musically. That actually happened with me very recently with a vocalist, a French vocalist, Raphael Brochet, who I'm going to be working with um, out on the West Coast now over the next few weeks. We're doing some gigs in Seattle together, also duo gigs. Okay. So another kind of duo conversation setting. Um, and she and I just met in India and we played together once. And after that meeting and we, you know, our first time playing together, and even before we played, we just knew it was like we just looked at each other and knew that it was going to work. You know, there was something about our personality or our, just somehow we ha we're on the same wavelength, I guess. And that and duo playing is can be really magical. What kind of repertoire do you play with her? Uh, it's pretty interesting. She's I mean, she's a fantastic jazz vocalist, but she's also studied a lot of Carnatic music, South okay. Indian classical music. Mm -hmm. And um, she's studied Persian music. She's actually studied Balinese dance, you know, so just drawing on all these, I guess you could say world music, although that term is, you know, not that useful, um, I guess. But it's in fact really annoying. Insulting, I think. <laughs> right. Yeah. In a way, it's all like, music is world all, music. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. All music is world music. So, you know, people say, well, what kind of music do you like? I say, well, I mean, do you want me to list all the different right. countries that all the music, you know, just say world music, but music made not by white Westerners. Right. Becomes world music. I suppose. Yeah, exactly. It's like somehow that's, we're not, you know, if, if you're white, you're not part of, you don't have a culture, you're not part of the world. That's another discussion that as an anthropology major, actually, I tend to think about a lot. So, sure. um, but in a, any case, going back to Raphael, um, so she has this kind of very different background for me in some ways. You know, she's got all of this Indian music that she's studied, South Indian music. Um, she's, you know, coming from more Middle Eastern music and that kind of thing. And also French chanson, you know, she sings these these French songs that are just beautiful. And so even though we don't really share some of that background, there's something about the way we feel music on maybe a deeper or a deeper level or maybe a more, um, I don't know if it's a more general level. There's something about, you know, or maybe it's just a spiritual level of interpreting music that is not about particular genres or, you know, the notes or the chords or anything like that that sort of goes beyond that and that we're, is where we're really trying to get to when we, when we play music. Can you talk about the way in which you use spiritual in that sentence? What you mean? Um, yeah, this is something I think about a lot these days, and it, I guess it's something to do with finding the moments where we all can feel connected or you know any of us or even one of us can feel connected to the universe and to everything and um you know animals and trees and to me that's kind of what spirituality is 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 that 
those little teeny moments of sort of cracks or openings in the fog where you're kind of suddenly aware for one instant that everyone's connected and that we're all the same and that we're all kind of part of one being, you know, one organism really. And and then of course you just go back and you forget again and you get sucked back into your daily existence sure. and your problems and everything and you and you sort of and you lose that awareness. But there are those little moments that I think happen not just in music of course and you know and in, in life basically that are so beautiful because it's like a realization just for a minute of okay you know we're all in this together and it's all okay and and um and that's the great thing i think about whatever you are dedicated to you know whatever thing if it's music or whatever it is that you one really practices out of love and really believing in it you know i think is to me that's spirituality I think something that we share in common is uh, at least some kind of meditation practice, right? Yes. Um, yes. And I know for me, the it has a lot of uses, one of them being exactly what you're just talking about, that um, just kind of like bringing, bringing me back to myself and reminding me of my connection to everything that's around me. And so I wonder if you find that that uh, maybe your meditation practice informs your music or vice versa, or it's a, a circle, kind of a symbiotic relationship? Yeah, well, um, the meditation practice for me is pretty new. It's a pretty recent thing. Um, I'd say probably in about the last year, I've sort of really started to, you know, sit almost every day and really dedicate myself to it much more. Sure. Um, but I think that feeling that I'm sort of was trying to describe in language, which one really can't describe in language, of course. Um, I think that feeling is something that I was, I've been familiar with in music ever since, you know, I was little and I first wanted to go up to the piano and kind of find little melodies and, right. you know, and play. And, um, and I started studying with this beautiful piano teacher who I took classical piano with a strict Russian teacher, you know, and, um, just a wonderful person who really, really opened my eyes to this idea in music that it's not about the music. It's about, life and what you know we're all ex the human experience you could say and how music is just a way to communicate that and channel it and um 
So I think I sort of had an awareness of this, but I didn't quite see it as as spirituality per se until more recently when I started the meditation. Um, and it's an ongoing thing, you know. It's it's like when you talk about it this way, it kind of makes it seem like, oh yes, this is something I'm I'm doing and I'm into and I'm now. I've somehow figured something out about right, it when, yeah, yeah, when actually it's not that it's not really that at all. And I don't want to give the impression that, you know, in it, that in any way I know anything about it or anything sure. like that. Um, but it's just something that I've, you know, like you say, it's, you kind of keep returning to yourself and, and I think music can be a form of practice, you know, for, for that. Um, of course it's difficult when you do it for your career, your so-called career, it's difficult to, um, maybe it's really great maybe it's a wonderful practice but it's it can be difficult to separate you know the sort of ego attachment and the feelings of okay well i have to be good or i have to you know play well and i have this concert coming up or i'm i'm playing a gig with such and such a person i better make sure i know their music really well so that they'll think i'm you know doing a good job and um it can it can make it tricky to to kind of remember that aspect of it that's just about you know the beauty the human connection and everything and not about ego, um, especially as a jazz musician, I think, because jazz in a way can be somewhat of an ego music sometimes, you know, sure. about individual, you know, virtuosity and everything and, and a form of creativity that can be kind of impressive, you know, to others. And so I think it's maybe especially good for jazz musicians. I don't know, the meditation, I guess it's good for everyone, but um, just one more on thing on that note, I went on this meditation retreat um, in February, which was a fantastic experience. And at one point, one of the teachers there said something about, you know, how you weren't really trying to get from point A to point B, you're just getting from point A to point A, basically, in meditation, and and that it's not goal-oriented, you're not trying to get anywhere or get better. And I remember thinking, so I'm sort of puzzled, you know, like it's a practice that you do, but you're not really trying to get better. That just that seems kind of weird to me. It's like almost a waste of time, you know, like it's not productive. What if I thought about music that way? I mean, and suddenly this light bulb went on like, wait a second. <laughs> what if I thought about music that exactly. way? <laughs> wait a minute. Yeah. What if I thought about music that way? And that really made a big impression on me. And I, you know, I've kind of tried to remember that little light bulb moment later on and, you know, or at least see if I can remind myself of that sure. feeling of like, yeah, you know, that's. It is what it's about, actually. Yeah. It's just being there in the moment. And what better way to be there in the moment fully than improvising, you know, with people or alone or in front of people or not, you know, just improvising. Yeah, I think the discussion of ego gets interesting because, like, there's nothing wrong with wanting to play someone's music well, for example, or, right. you know, to actually, like, know the head and the changes and those kinds of things. I mean, that's – I don't – I think you can want to do those things and excel at those things without necessarily wanting to do them because it will make you seem great. You know, I think there's, it's perfectly fine to be, I think, take satisfaction in like doing it well. And, you know, yeah. if someone hires you playing well on their gig or getting hired back or, you know, whatever it might be. I mean, I think that stuff is fine and can be separate. You know, a desire to do well can be separate from a desire to do well purely to gratify yourself. Absolutely. And I think in a way it's, um, I mean, it's, not in a way, but fully, it's a form of respecting the music itself. You sure. know, it's saying like this is the craft and this is the beautiful art form that is not any one person's. You know, it's all of ours that we're kind of being given custody of. I mean, I suppose you could say that about everything. You know, it's that's true of our bodies, of anything we think of our, as our possessions. You know, so the music also, even though it may have come through a particular player, 
at least the way I see it, you know, is that it doesn't necessarily belong to that player, that it's something that they are, you know, they were given the gift of having that music come out of them or somehow, you know, they, they were, they found themselves there in that place where that was their music that they were doing. But, um, so I think if we look at it that way and say, well, you know, maybe I'm, I sort of, you could say it's a calling or, or for whatever reason I've, I'm drawn to this music and I want to do it well because for that very reason, the music itself is wonderful. And, you know, maybe it's my duty even, or some, in some way it's, it's, um, a responsibility to the music rather than to myself. Sure. I mean, that would be a great way to think of it. If, you know, not, <laughs> I don't think that any of us, well, maybe there are some enlightened people out there who always are seeing it that way and never right. attached to ego, but. I have never met any person like that. <laughs> right. And I, I don't yeah. expect I ever will. Yeah. yeah, it's easy to say. It's very easy to say. <laughs> exactly, yeah. If it were yeah. easy to do, everyone would do it, right? So, right. <laughs> um, you went, I know, to both NEC and Tufts uh, mm-hmm. concurrently, right? Which seems insane. And uh, can yeah. you talk about why you did that and what you did at both places? Um, yeah, well, it's a little bit insane, but they kind of make it, you know, it's a program that is designed to be doable, at least, okay. by people who are probably workaholics uh, most of the time. <laughs> And it's a five-year program. So, you know, and there's a shuttle bus that takes you back and forth between the schools and everything. It's not like you're just on your own trying to (laughs) do it, you know. Um, I have some wonderful, wonderful friends who went through the program with me. Um, And it's just a, yeah, it was a great opportunity, really, for, for someone who didn't, whether because of being indecisive by nature or just, you know, with very broad interests or for whatever reason, you know, I felt like I didn't want to make the decision just yet about whether I was going to completely focus on music or do something academic, sure. you know. And so I ended up um, studying anthropology at Tufts and doing jazz piano performance at New England Conservatory. And this actually fit together pretty well, I think. It was a it was a very nice sort of um, way to have something else to be thinking about sometimes, you know, it's like, okay, I'm tired of reading all of this Clifford Geertz. Let me go practice some piano or, you know, or the other way around. And, and also it afforded me the opportunity to see jazz from kind of an anthropological perspective sometimes, you know, to sort of think about what it might mean to people who play it and, you know, look at it through different lenses as we say. And, you know, and, um, rather than just sort of being a participant without really questioning what the culture was or, you know, how it worked. Um, Did that change the way that you approach playing the music or that you approached learning the tradition or whatever it might be? Um, I think, I don't know if it changed because of studying anthropology. I think the fact that I was drawn to doing anthropology and jazz might relate to a feeling I've always had, which is that, um, you know, I didn't ever feel fully like a jazz insider, you could say. Um, I mean, I don't know who would be. It's, you know, it's like, who's a, who does jazz belong to? Who's an insider these days? You know, that's another large discussion that we can have about authenticity, which many people are having right now on Facebook and other places, which is great. You know, it's wonderful. Um, all I know is I love the music and I wanted to be playing it and, you know, I was drawn to it. Um, but in terms of issues of sort of cultural ownership and insider and outsider perspectives and all this sort of thing, um, I think I always sort of felt like, well, I love jazz and I love all this other music too. You know, I was one of those people who, like, I was listening to, I don't know, Hamza Eldin, the oud player. And, you know, I was like, I love this music. What is this? I want to know. You know, I just wanted to just understand and learn and, and, you know, experience all of these different cultures in the world. And I didn't quite feel like any one of them in particular 
was mine in a way. You know, I came from a family that was um, partly from New Zealand and partly, you know, from another immigrant family from Scandinavia. And, you know, so it's sort of, I guess that's part of being an American in a way is sort of saying like, what is my culture as, you know, coming from immigrants and, you know, who are we really? And, and that was sort of what I was asking in microcosm was, you know, like, where do I belong? And how do I relate to all of these different traditions and, you know, in the world? And so jazz is one of the musics that I think I feel closest to, but I wouldn't necessarily say that, you know, I was coming at it or coming out of it completely as an insider, you could say. Yeah, and it sounded like, um, and again, I've only seen you play live once, and I've heard some of the recordings, but um, it, it sounds like maybe the the answer that you arrived at was just to give yourself license to draw from whatever moves you. I mean, if that, if, you know, the one show I saw, if we just take that as a microcosm of who you were at that moment, mm -hmm. I mean, there was everything from, you know, Los Tres Golpes, this you know, classic Cuban composition, to the, I think it was called the Nymphs of the Milky Way, um, you know, this kind of East Asian inspired piece, to all the things you are, but done, uh, you know, kind of reharmonized. And so it seemed like you were just, you know, just drawing from the things that touch you emotionally and saying this is all this can all be my music yeah yeah i think that's the answer i've kind of come to for now anyway you know is that if um before you launch into your all heavy metal career right exactly right. <laughs> then i'll then i can finally say i found myself <laughs> that's, that's right, right. <laughs> not that hey i mean you never know yeah man that could happen Don't <laughs> but um yeah i think that's a good way of putting it is that you come to the realization that if something moves you and when you play it it moves someone else or you know it it feels right, then, then, you know, go for it. And I mean, I, I would hate to think that anyone out there would hear the music and say, oh, you know, how, how come that person is playing this Cuban piece? And I think that's something that we, we sometimes tend to worry about. But I mean, first of all, I will say, it's not like I'm making any money off of playing anyone else's <laughs> music. I'll just uh, put that disclaimer out there. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, it is something to be cognizant of, I suppose, the idea of not exploiting people's, you know, people's traditions and everything. But on the other hand, I think we've, we now live in this world where all of this information is pretty accessible to everyone or many of us. And, um, and if we really, truly feel moved by it, I think that's honest, you know, it's I, really honesty, I guess, is the value that I would say, as long as that's there and integrity, I think you're probably okay. You know. Yeah, I think you can usually sense when, it, when it's cultural tourism that you're listening to, mm -hmm. rather than a, a genuine exploration of other music. Yeah, yeah. I mean, not to mention that whole thing about, um, we, and we were talking about this a little bit earlier, but that whole idea of like, who has ownership of what music, and why is it, why is it any more authentic for? A Cuban person to play Los Tres Golpes, or, or any less authentic for a Cuban kid to play the Ramones than anything else. Right. I mean, exactly. You know, there's just it. It just seems like everything is can be everyone's right. at this point, which I, I think is great. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's in a way that's sort of a postmodern perspective on it. You oh, know, God. And, 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 <laughs> and I'd like to edit that out <laughs> if I can. Okay. <laughs> you know, I don't mean that. In a, I don't mean that in a negative, but um, I think. I think now we're in a good place now, though, I think also because not only do we have access to a lot of these, you know, these sounds, but we also have access to a lot of context, it seems like, you know, it's possible to say, okay, I really want to understand where this is coming from the lineage, you know, what does it really mean to the people who, you know, 
it may or may not have come from. You know, you can actually ask these questions and really try to find that context. And sure. really, you know, and I think so in a way you can say, like, if you want to just take it and, you know, I feel like I just want to have a little bit of tabla on my jazz record, you know, <laughs> that's OK. That's cool. And if you want to anywhere from there to, OK, I'm going to move to India and, you know, study with somebody for decades. And that's also a possibility, I suppose. It's just sort of like what do you want to do and what moves you and what, you know, what feels right, I think. I've been reading this really good book by uh, David Brown about the year 1970, and in particular, the albums by James Taylor, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, uh, Simon and Garfunkel, and the Beatles that came out in that year of the four records by those bands. And one thing I didn't realize was that when Simon and Garfunkel did their version of El Condor Pasa, which is on Bridge Over Troubled Water, what they actually did was take the recording they had heard of the Andean musicians who played it, and they just took the vocals off, and they recorded their own voices over I always thought they got musicians to come in the studio and recreate that and they said they specifically did not get people to come in the studio and recreate it because they said what had moved them was what they heard mm-hmm. and all they wanted to do was put an english lyric mm-hmm. over it and so they literally just took it now and that uh, to me gets into that whole question of like okay so is that appropriation that we just basically lock stock and barrel took this and sang over it mm-hmm. is it showing more respect to the music for that reason and it, it seems to me like you can almost never get to the bottom yeah, I maybe. think, yeah, that's true. I think you're right. It's very difficult to get to the bottom of them, especially, you know, when money is involved, when you when you start saying like, well, you know, how much would those musicians have been owed in different circumstances? Right. And, you know, I mean, that gets to be really tricky. And, and I certainly don't necessarily want to wade into that discussion, you sure. know, because because absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, respect for for people's work and for their heritage and their traditions and everything is is of the utmost importance you know and um but then we that comes up against this issue that we're sort of talking about about when you personally feel moved by something and and you're really honestly trying to make a statement now i mean i don't really know what their you know what their story really was about that who knows but i know for myself that um you know i feel like if if i'm expressing something that's true for me whether it's sort of an emotional state or you know 
something even just beyond words, but just something about life and existence that feels true that happens to also coincide with, you know, this Cuban classical piece from the 19th century or whatever. Um, I don't think that there's anything necessarily wrong with that as long as it's, yeah. as long as it's honest. Sure. You know? And we'll leave Paul Simon out of it. Sure he has good lawyers <laughs> yeah. and neither of us do. So, right. Exactly. Um, India has come up a few times in this conversation, and I know uh, you're going back um, before too long. So can you talk about your Indian experiences, how you got there originally? And sure, yeah. Back? Yeah, it's a it's a wonderful story, actually, I, I believe. Anyway. Um, I'll be the judge of that. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> well, it's, I mean, it's hard to tell this story to anyone with a straight face, basically. Okay. Um, so I play in a band called the Xylophokes, which um, some of the listeners may have seen actually playing in the subway, the New York City subway. Yes, you have. Okay. <laughs> and I have to say, I'm only sort of a sometime member because I don't play in the subway usually with them um, for obvious reasons because I play piano in the band. Um, and so, but it's led by a xylophonist named John Singer who wears a skunk, sorry, John, I just outed you to um, <laughs> who, what your, your um, true identity is, but skunky, I should say, um, is the xylophonist, wears a skunk suit, and there's a bass player who's usually a pink gorilla, um, although it kind of depends, and I wear a dog suit in the band. So it's the xylophokes. We play these 1920s ragtime pieces by George Hamilton Green, xylophone uh, composer, and um, long story short, we'd been playing a lot in New York, and John, who also happens to be a prodigy at many other kinds of percussion, including marimba and all these other music uh, types of music and instruments, um, he had gotten a Fulbright to study Murdungam in South India, in Chennai. And so, which is what? Which is a percussion instrument, um, which is played, it's sort of played on its side. There's two... Um, you know, two heads. Okay. And so you're playing with um, either hand, basically both hands. And uh, that's the extent of my knowledge about it, actually. But <laughs> in any case, so John was in India studying, you know, this South Indian classical music, but because he had had this band, the Xylophokes, in New York, and he really loved it and he didn't want to give it up, the natural solution was that we should tour India wearing our costumes, <laughs> carrying around, you know, a travel bass. And, um, and we had Bridget Carney playing bass, and she had this travel bass with her. And I had a little Casio keyboard and we actually carried all this stuff with us on the trains, like from Chennai to Bangalore and, you know, with our animal costumes on and got out and played on the platform and played in vegetable markets in Delhi and just, you know, like pretty surreal, basically. Yeah. <laughs> a surreal experience that was also really wonderful and I loved it. And, you know, I just felt like, okay, the time has come for India to be part of my life, you know? And so it felt, it felt like... I knew I was going to go back, basically, and experience it again. And I did end up going back about six months later and playing with some more musicians over there and getting to see a little bit more of the country as well. Although not, I, not in an animal costume. Not in an time. animal costume yeah. this time, unfortunately. <laughs> and, um, and then I'm actually going to be going back there again to teach at a school there, which is the Swarnabhumi Academy of Music, and it's um, run by a guitarist, Prasanna, who has a project with um, Vijay Iyer and Nitin Mitta, a tablet player. And um, so Prasanna does this, you know, kind of fusion music with this, again, South Indian classical music and jazz and rock and these other influences. Speaking of, you know, authenticity in this whole, this whole discussion, you know, and world music and everything. Um, and anyway, and so Prasanna has founded this school where people who want to study Western contemporary music um, at a college level can do so without necessarily, you know, going overseas or, okay. or whatever. And, um, 
and so far it's it's been great i i hear anyway they've got great faculty and you know i think they're doing great things and it's been a lot of fun and it's it's a pretty small school you know there's one faculty member for each instrument so okay. there's a lot of and there aren't that many students either so there's a lot of kind of individual attention and really sort of a laboratory i think for for work to be done and cross cultural you know um, study and everything. So, and how did you end up getting hired there? Uh, I went to visit the school when I was in India the last time and, you know, kind of got to check it out, meet people and everything. Um, and also Prasanna went to Berkeley and I actually did uh, teach at Berkeley in the piano department right, okay. for four years. And so I think partly through the Berkeley network as well. Um, you know, that was part of it. Sure. So yeah. is uh, is study of your own also going to be part of this trip? I'm really hoping so. Yeah, I'm actually sort of working on the the logistical end of it right now. Okay. And um but I would really love to to get some, you know, an opportunity to study a little bit. Of course, with Indian music, at least, you know, any Indian classical sort of tradition. No piano, right? Well, that's that's one. Yeah, there's no piano. Although people, I guess people are using keyboards in Hindustani music where, okay. you know, you can use the pitch bend and everything. Right, and right. we heard some, some people doing great things with that. Cool. Um, there's also the harmonium, which is a bit similar sure, to right. accordion, which I play. Um, so that might be a good a good instrument yeah. for me over there. Um, but I mean, Indian music is just so vast. It's like, you know, it's like saying American music, right. you know, and I mean, it's, and speaking of, except several thousand years old, except several thousand years older and part of a culture where you don't, you know, you don't just go and take a lesson and right. you know what I mean? It's like you go and live with somebody for years and, you know, sweep for them or, you know, or so I understand, you know, not sure. that I know that much about the culture either, but, um, you know, so it's. Again, it's a question of, well, how do I go there and fulfill my, you know, feeling of being drawn to the music and connected and especially um, North Indian Hindustani music is just, I, you know, I love it from some concerts that I've heard recently. I've just been very drawn to it. But at the same time, you know, understanding, well, I'm a jazz musician, I'm, you know, I'm American, I've got this thing that I'm doing here in New York. So, so what's a good approach? You know, what's a way to go over there and take a few lessons and and not necessarily feel like I'm just kind of dabbling in something that, right. you know, that's sort of meaningless to me or something like that. Like, you know, a way to do it that um, that makes sense, I guess. Sure.
I know you came to New York three years ago. Why did you decide to come here? Um, I kind of knew that New York was the best place to come for to go in any direction, really, to have the ability to go any direction that might present itself, I think. Um, I mean, Boston was a wonderful city to study in. I think it's a fantastic place for school um, and to play in and to stay. You know, there's a lot of great musicians there. But I sort of felt like, for me, I was really drawn to the idea that no matter what kind of music you might want to check out, any night of the week, you could probably go find it. You right. know, like I think I'm. I think I want to hear some Shoro tonight. You know, like okay, well that's going on, and yeah. you know, I'd like to hear some Kawali music. Okay, that's going. You know, it's like, I mean, it's it's, it's fantastic yeah. as we know. You know, it's a great. It's a wonderful. It's a wonderful thing, and it's also a really difficult city to live in. I don't need to tell anyone, but um, so you know, so it was a challenge as well. It's I think a lot of us who become New Yorkers possibly have a personality type that is drawn to the right. challenge of living in New York as well, maybe. Said by someone who went to two colleges at the same time. So, well, yeah. <laughs> well, every challenge is different, I guess. But, yeah. you know, so there's, there's, there is something about being drawn to this kind of level of energy and sure. speed and everything. And, um, and I think that it's, it's nice to look for balance as well within this. You know, I think meditation is great for that, actually. Yeah. Um, you know, kind of understanding that about ourselves like okay we're really drawn to this fast pace and so you know let's stay balanced as well sure. it's, it's important Where did you grow up? Seattle. Okay. Mm -hmm. And is that where you first got introduced to, to jazz? What attracted you? Yeah, to? yeah. Um, it is. And I had an older brother. I have an older brother who's a tenor saxophonist, and he really was my introduction to jazz. Okay. My brother, Carl. Yeah, he started playing the saxophone, and I was playing classical piano. But when he started playing saxophone, naturally, he needed to wear sunglasses and play jazz, <laughs> you know, because that's what you do when you play the saxophone. And so he he was the first person to kind of sit me down and go, okay, this is a blues, you know, I'm going to teach you a 12-bar blues progression, and so that I would accompany him while he practiced. Nice. So I was his Abersold. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and then from there, I mean, we, Seattle is was very lucky because um, we and is very lucky to have a really strong school uh, jazz program scene. You know, okay. there are a lot of schools there, high schools and even middle schools that have really great jazz programs and traditions of, you know, like parents who are really supportive and people just really getting into jazz there and a thriving performance scene of, you know, wonderful musicians out there. And so I was really lucky to be born in a place that, you know, and grow up in a place that was very conducive to jazz. We had a great, um, we have a few stations, you know, radio stations with jazz and jazz radio shows and everything. Yeah. And so, yeah, it seems like just an amazing music place 
in general. I, I once years ago, uh, when I was still working in radio, um, was looking at getting a job at KEXP. Mm-hmm. And so for a while, which I did not get, but for a while I was listening to KEXP all the time and just thinking like, how is it even possible this station exists <laughs> in the yeah. world? And then it seems like the farther you dig, there's a million things like that in Seattle. I mean, it just seems like a really deeply musically rooted city. I've never spent any time there at all, but it seems pretty amazing. Yeah, it is. And I think, I think Seattleites are also pretty open to, you know, things that are non-traditional and kind of, interesting and weird and different and yeah. you know it's sort of a hippie town in a way you know it has been at least um and so it's kind of you know it's nice to be from a place like that where it, it feels very um unpretentious i guess is sure the word so what's coming up for you I, obviously you're uh, going to india for a while but uh, what mm-hmm. else is on your horizon it sounds like the west coast yeah so tour. there's the west yep. coast tour with Raphael, which is more duo stuff and um, when does that start this so this show is going to be uh next thursday I can't even remember what date today is, to be honest with you. That's, What's today? The 17th? That's how I feel it, too. Yeah. Um, yeah, today's the 17th. So tomorrow's, uh-huh. which is Thursday, is the 18th. So the 25th is, the, when people are listening to this, today is the 25th of whatever month this is, August. Right. So is the tour still so, ongoing? So at the moment people are listening, I'm um, hiking in the Cascade Mountains. Well, that sounds <laughs> nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the weekend after that will be uh, two shows in Seattle. Okay. And then we'll be heading down to San Francisco and then, um, you know, a little bit back to seattle again then i'll be back in new york and my next show in new york will be a trio show at the 55 bar on september 18th okay yeah so that should be um that'll be the next time i'm I'm playing out in new york and should be a lot of fun hopefully so we'll tell the west coast listeners to go to your website which will be linked in the show notes to this show and the i assume the dates for the west coast stuff yeah that's right it's september 2nd and 3rd and the information is all is all there all right, great. Yeah. Um, and what about uh, any recording projects or anything on the horizon? Um, well, I have a live trio album that just came out recently, oh, right. which is right. which is Eye to Eye, and um, that's actually was mostly recorded live in Seattle at the Earshot Jazz Festival last okay. year, and again features Kendall Eddy on bass and Austin McMahon on drums, and um, so that's that's the most recent thing and. I don't doubt that after coming back from India, I'll be inspired to, <laughs> you know, to take that experience and somehow sure. channel it into into the next project. That's um, great. If we, unless we record something over there, maybe, you know, maybe so. Yeah, so. Uh, that's very exciting. My guest is Carmen Stoff, and uh, it's been a pleasure to get to know you and your music, and uh, thank you for taking the time to talk about it. Thank you. It's been my pleasure.
That's music from Carmen Stoff and her trio with their album Eye to Eye. I'm Jason Crane. This is the Jazz Session, sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. Please, if you like what you heard, become a member. That's what's going to keep this show going. You can do that at thejazzsession.com slash join. And now, if you would please, disconnect yourself from the digital domain and head out into the real world to support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and then come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Bye. Bye. Bye.